Welcome to Folk Rock Diva Talk, your intersectional destination for all things music, dignity politics, personal growth and development, queer life, fat activism, and general existentials. My name is Lily Lewis, the Folk Rock Diva, and I am here to tell you all about the view from my corner of the universe. This is a story of a magical night. A night where introvert pianists from all over New Orleans gathered in virtual glory to present the 2021 WWOZ Piano Night. (laughs) So maybe it was only magical for me because I'm a total piano nerd who's been obsessed and enamored with the instrument and the people who play it for as long as I can remember. And maybe it was extra magical for me this year because I was invited to participate. All I know is that for two and a half hours on a Monday night, I sat with my family, each with our respective devices, and watched people play my favorite instrument. I honestly felt like Eliza Doolittle, maybe a little bit of Cinderella at the ball, But I'll probably need to backtrack a little bit to fill you in on why it was so special for me. See, when I was growing up, I felt like my mother wanted me to do anything but pursue a career in music. She said it was because music was too subjective, that it didn't matter how talented I was. There was always going to be somebody around who's going to criticize me or try to you know, dismiss what I did, and she didn't want that life for me. That's one of the stories that she told, and I'm sure that's still the story she would tell if anyone asked her. But I think I received a different message. I think I received the message that said that it didn't matter how hard I worked and it didn't matter how talented I was, that my music would never be penetrating enough to reach people. I think I received the message that the thing that was most precious and alive for me meant nothing to the woman who bore me. And that was backed up by some other things that were going on at the time. Like, you know, practicing in the home was always disturbing to people. Um, You know, it made too much noise. Even later on in life when I got a keyboard and practiced with my headphones on, they still didn't like the clicking of the keys. I think from things like that, I got embarrassed. I started to be embarrassed every time I played. Um, And that was also reinforced by the neighbors upstairs, who whenever I played out loud, they'd bang on the floor to make sure I knew that they weren't enjoying what was happening. In the meantime... I was kind of in a rhapsodious love affair with Brahms and Beethoven sometimes, and my favorite of all favorites, Gabrielle Fauré. I was trying to get intimately acquainted with their inner workings through those black etchings on the score. I think those etchings for me represented a world far beyond my imagining. In in fact, a world that was self-generated by someone else's imagination. And if someone else could make something so beautiful with their mind, then maybe that would also be possible for me one day. 
And then as I grew older and learned a little bit more about the nervous system and learned a little bit more about my trauma, I realized that that music was also serving as my method for self-soothing. See, that period in my life was laced with an awful lot of adverse experiences, as they say in the lingo. And it's not unusual for folks with the trauma history that looks like mine to adopt an awful lot of addictive patterns. And while I can't say that I totally sidestepped those, I can say that I'm certain that music saved my life pretty early on, and uh, it continues to do so on a regular basis. And even though that's true, I still find myself struggling with those messages of shame that I took on in those early years. I'm pretty sure that it's universal that young people receive messages uh, when they're trying to learn how to be in the world um, and that we fill in the blanks of what people don't see with some of the ugliest stories that any mind could conjure. I feel so lucky to have found something that felt so magical to me that took me to the land of unicorns and fairies, for goodness sakes, at a time when the KKK was active in my hometown at a time when I could literally feel people looking through me instead of looking at me, invisibilizing me with their own ideas of what a black girl in the South should be able to do. You know, uh, how many times did I hear, oh, you're so articulate, or wow, you're good at math, or, you know, maybe you shouldn't take that class. It might be too much of a challenge. And these little microaggressions followed me all through adulthood. It's not like they ever ended. But now that we find ourselves in this season where it feels like it's open season on black bodies again, I find myself revisiting all the ways in which humans are taught not to look up, not to lift their gaze, all the ways in which we're taught that will be punished if we ever shine a light on anything, if we ever reveal our wings, if we ever actually take flight. I know as a black American, when I see characters like Sophia from Alice Walker's The Color Purple, when, when I see her get demolished for talking back, um, there's a very primal part of me that knows that that's the expectation, that knows that her talking back is going to cause her demise. And yet I know that it's no safer not speaking up than it would be speaking your mind. And that's exactly what I did about two weeks ago when my mother confronted me about an interview she had overheard about my life in music. She'd felt like I hadn't said much at least not enough about her contribution to my work and where I've gotten. <laughs> and she confronted me about it. Now, the first thing that happened for me was utter terror. I thought, I'm not prepared to have this conversation. I need to escape. Somebody get me out of here. I could feel my innards start to quake, and I felt like I was in danger. <laughs> but luckily... After all this time of doing my inner work and trying to get to know my signals, I was able to breathe. I was able to ask if she was prepared for an honest answer. 
I was available to a yes or no response. And when she said, yes, I want to know the truth, I told her the truth. I was able to tell her that as a young person, I internalized all that shame. I was able to tell her that as a young person, I had filled in the gaps of her silence where, you know, encouragement might have been and 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 told myself terrible stories that I still contend with to this day. And she said, but what about this that I did? And what about that that I did? Because that's what we as humans do. We immediately defend when we feel like we're being blamed. And I told her, you know, Mom, that's not actually how the mind works. I was so happy to have learned and be able to report that we do, in fact, register negative information over positive information because that negative signaling is designed to keep us alive. Now, we're in the wild and we're terrified, and that means that we can react quickly. We have reflexes that get us away from the wild beast that's coming to get us. Whereas when the sun is out and the clouds are not too foreboding, and we've got flowers to smell and plenty of berries to, uh, to gather, um, well, there's, there's no real consequence to missing any of that. There's no consequence. And because there's no consequence, it doesn't register on our brain in the same way. And as a result, we need an awful lot more positive reinforcement than negative now, by the time I finished explaining this, my voice was quaking, and the defense was still loaded for my mother. And I said, I want you to stop and pay attention to how my breath is getting high, and how my voice is quaking, and how these, these are signals that I don't feel like I'm safe right now. Um, and I, I want you to be aware of that when you decide what you're going to say next. And she stopped, and she performed the miracle of my life. She said, I didn't know that. That explains a lot. (sighs) I took a breath. I understood that that was as much as I could handle for that day. And I left the room, and I sobbed. (laughs) I think a good 30 minutes... Um, of an ugly cry. And then I went out and continued to perform my daughterly duties. And that was the end of the conversation. But that one conversation released a pressure valve and all of my innards started to relax in ways that I had not known to expect. Um... And then two weeks later, this magical moment happens where she takes the time to sit with me and watch me delight in 24 beautiful pianists playing beautiful piano music. (laughs) We enjoyed Larry Seabirth, who played right before me, this really warm, groovy kind of tune. And then we enjoyed together John Batiste, who played after me, who played his new single from uh, from the new record, uh, first straightforward, then he deconstructed it and played a multitude of notes, and it seemed like he was playing in more than one 
time signature at the same time, and then he deconstructed it again and made it a prayer, and then he deconstructed it again and showed us how it was actually like a Duke Ellington tune that he liked, that he closed out with. It was really stunning. Um, the whole night was stunning. I finally got a chance to experience another gorgeous pianist, Devel Crawford, um, and a lot of my friends from the city also playing. It was a fellowship of sorts, and I'm really honored to have had a chance to participate. It made me want to drop all the social and spiritual acrobatics I performed to just try to survive in this world as a black American or just as a human. Um, and try to figure out how to be myself and let that be enough. I think after all this time, I'm finally realizing that as a rare and simple expression of life's longing for itself, as Khalil Gibran would say, there's nothing to hide, there's nothing to prove, and there's nothing to be ashamed of.
Support Folk Rock Diva Talk by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash folkrockdiva. And remember, if you're not sure how to be, practice radical decency. <laughs>